Welcome to Full Scope, a weekly medical podcast designed to teach, inspire, and encourage listeners to question everything they know. I'm your host, Bill Brandenburg. In 1926, a medication called fencyclidine, also known as PCP, also known as angel dust, was discovered. In 1950, it then became used for anesthesia in the medical setting. However, this drug was fairly rapidly discontinued because of a very high incidence of post-operative psychosis, dysphoria, aggressive behavior, and agitation. However, fencyclidine has some fairly unique properties in that it can put people fully asleep, but yet they're able to maintain their respiratory drive. Meaning, you give them a large dose, they go to sleep, they also get some pain reduction, and on top of that they keep breathing. This is an amazing thing. This is different than a lot of anesthetics, and this is why Fencyclidine and drugs like it are very, very cool. Fast forward to 1962, and you get the discovery of one of fencyclidine's derivatives, namely ketamine. By 1970, ketamine enters clinical use, and it is a heck of a drug because it can do a lot of different things has a lot of different benefits, and all said and done, has a pretty darn good safety record. Ketamine became extremely widely used in military medicine during the Vietnam War, where it was was one of the most common, or the most common, anesthetic used. This is a drug that is very valuable in both hospitals and clinics, but I would say invaluable in resource-limiting settings. Ketamine, PCP, and other derivatives of these medications, such as the medication teletamine, which is used in veterinary medicine, as well as other designer hallucinogenic drugs of uh, abuse or recreation, like methoxetamine, all belong to a group of substances or small molecules known as aural cyclohexylamines. They're all what are referred to as dissociative anesthetics. What they do at high enough doses is they dissociate the somatosensory cortex or the part of the brain that feels, sees, hears, etc the sensory part of your body from the higher mental functions. And that causes unique properties. And this group of drugs is extremely unique. And let's dive in. At this point, we're going to leave behind all the derivatives, as well as ketamine's more evil twin, fencyclidine, or PCP, and focus primarily on ketamine. We're going to talk about the mechanism of action of ketamine, the NMDA receptor, 
which is one of the main mechanisms by which ketamine has effects on the body. We're going to talk about the clinical effects of ketamine, uh, kind of the, the therapeutic effects as well as side effects and problems and toxicities. We're going to talk about the use of low dose or sub-dissociative ketamine. We're going to talk about high dose or dissociative doses of ketamine. Then we're going to take a deeper dive into those toxicity and side effects. We're going to talk about how to treat that toxicity. And then we're going to talk a little bit about why ketamine is such an excellent choice in resource-poor settings, like, say, the wilderness or outer space. Ketamine has been described by some to be a panacea. And a panacea basically means cure-all. And the word comes from Greek mythology. Actually, panacea was a Greek goddess. In fact, she was the goddess of universal remedy. This goddess, panacea, was the daughter of a famous Greek god, Asclepius, and his wife, Epione. I hope I said that right. Asclepius, of course, is, is very well known in the medical community because he is the Greek god of, of medicine. Asclepius was, of course, the son of Apollo, who is kind of one of the more noteworthy Greek gods and a, and a son of Zeus and a god of a lot of important different things. And so that's where the word panacea comes from. That's why we use the word panacea to mean a cure-all. And I'm sorry to break it to to everybody, but there's really no medication that is a panacea. In fact, there's only one panacea, and that's lifestyle. Exercise and diet will cure all people. Okay, back to ketamine. Ketamine acts at a number of different receptors throughout the body and has a number of different uh, effects on various neurotransmitters and other cellular functions. Its main mechanism of action is thought to be through inhibition or antagonism of the N-methyl D-aspartate receptor. This is known for short as the NMDA receptor and it is a very common receptor in the central nervous system and all the nerves throughout the body. Ketamine also has effects via inhibition of reuptake of dopamine, norepinephrine, and serotonin, which are all very important neurotransmitters, as well as a blocking of potassium conductance in the brain. On top of this, ketamine is known to stimulate both the mu, delta, sigma, and kappa opioid receptors. At very high doses, ketamine can stimulate the sigma receptor as well as the D2 receptor, dopamine 2 receptor, which can cause inhibitory effects on the cholinergic receptor pathway. This is just the tip of the iceberg. It seems like every year or two when I pick up a new paper on ketamine, I hear about some new receptor that it's been shown to have either um, agonism or antagonism, meaning it activates a receptor or or inhibits a receptor. And so this is a lot more complicated than I'm explaining right now. I wanted to throw out some of the most important receptors. And now 
I'd like to take a more detailed look at the most important receptor, the NMDA receptor. Um, and, and by important, I mean the most important receptor that ketamine affects. Now, glutamate is the main excitatory neurotransmitter in the central nervous system. And glutamate is the neurotransmitter that activates the NMDA receptor. Glutamate is very important in a number of high-level neurologic functions, including things like perception, learning, memory, attention, even things like well-being are very much affected by glutamate. Interestingly, glutamate antagonism has been shown to be neuroprotective, and for that reason, ketamine may have some sort of protective role in, in things like head trauma and other traumas, but that is, uh, I think, up for a lot of debate. Glutaminergic pathways are not in isolation, though. They interact with multiple other pathways, including serotonergic, dopaminergic, gabaminergic. In fact, all of these neurotransmitters, receptors, are intertwined in this very complex biological reaction. When you pick up a textbook and you read it, you probably get the feeling that scientists know a lot of stuff. You read about these complicated receptors, their biochemistry, how they work. These things have been teased out using very um, precise and in ingenuitive and um, interesting biological techniques. However, the body is this very complex mixture of tons and, and let's just say millions or billions of different mechanistic pathways that all interact and intertwine in such a complex way. And for that reason, knowing about a few mechanistic pathways in the body don't really tell you very much because there's such a bigger picture overlying the whole thing. For that reason, there have been a number of medications which have been... Uh, sort of um, designed based on a certain mechanism. However, when used in vivo, meaning used in a living organism, an animal or a human, often the effect is very different. This is why humans use randomized controlled trials to study whether or not drugs work or not. Because we are so primitive in our understanding of mechanisms that we literally just have to take two very similar groups of people, throw the drug at one group, throw a placebo at another group, and test which one's better. That's kind of where we're at from a science standpoint in 2020. I think people read some of these journal articles and textbooks, and they hear about all these mechanisms and all this doctor stuff and diagnostics, and they think, oh, man, we know everything. We can diagnose, cure, et cetera, et cetera. And, guys, I got to tell you, we're just scratching the surface. All right, that's a nice aside. Let's get back to the NMDA receptor or rather glutamate receptors. We're getting to the NMDA receptor. So glutamate receptors are actually uh, a bunch of different types of receptors. As of 2019, and, and according to Goldfrank's toxicology, there's eight metabotropic receptors and three ionotropic glutamate receptors. One of the three ionotropic receptors is the NMDA receptor, N-methyl-D-aspartate. Now, the NMDA receptor comprises four subunits. It is a heteromeric tetramer, 
meaning that there are it's a it's a mixture of four different subunits and there is actually seven isoforms of NMDA at least in 2019 there'll probably be more and more as time goes on and all of these seven isoforms of the NMDA receptor are very important in higher cognitive functions again things like learning and memory on top of this they're also extremely critical for synaptic plasticity and remember plasticity is our ability or is the ability of the nerves or brain cells in our body to move around and change and hook up with other nerve cells to create new thought patterns and, and new ideas and that's a really important topic and we're going to get back to that when we talk about the use of ketamine and depression but this NMDA receptor is essentially a voltage gated and ligand gated calcium channel so it's just a tunnel it's a tunnel from outside of cells to inside of cells and what travels down that tunnel is usually calcium now sometimes sodium and even sometimes potassium can travel down some of these NMDA receptors but it's usually calcium and generally upon entrance into the cell high levels of calcium will activate that cell it'll cause the neuron to quote depolarize and, and send a conduction signal kind of an inactivation as opposed to an inhibition now this NMDA receptor is made up again of four subunits but it also has modulary sites which bind small ligands and we call these allosteric modulators and there's actually several on the NMDA receptor one notable inhibitor of the NMDA receptor is magnesium now magnesium like calcium is a divalent cation in fact magnesium is the second most abundant divalent cation in the body and so it kind of has an inhibitory role and so by that token you can think of magnesium as kind of calming as it is it kind of settles down that cell activation that glutamate activation another another uh, ligand area is actually within the channel and that's the PCP ligand remember phencyclidine and that's where ketamine binds ketamine binds kind of at a, at a spot inside that channel and inhibits the NMDA receptor so these allosteric modulators bind to the NMDA receptor they can either inhibit or help activate the channel and can kind of affect how how the channel works and in ketamine is is just that it is an allosteric inhibitor of the NMDA receptor okay so basically the deal is glutamate is the most abundant excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain and nervous system it activates several different receptors and receptors of course are usually on the surface of cells and usually neurons when glutamate binds to the NMDA receptor it opens up a channel in the middle of the receptor that then lets calcium in when enough calcium gets in that activates the cell and causes a um, a nerve impulse pulse to fire there are several 
areas on the NMDA receptor that can cause the receptor to either be activated or inhibited. The one we're focused on today is a area actually inside the channel where medications like ketamine bind and inhibit the ability of calcium to cross through the channel. All right, that's a lot about the NMDA receptor, about glutamate. I know that may have been pretty confusing for some of the listeners, so if that was too much, just keep listening. Don't worry about it. Before we get into the really fun stuff about ketamine, I want to talk a little bit of pharmacology. Ketamine is actually a racemic mixture of two mirror images. There's what's called a chiral center on the ketamine molecule, and basically you could think about ketamine as similar to your left and your right hand. While they look very, very similar, you can't superimpose them onto each other. They're actually mirror images of each other, and you can see that when you hold both your hands in front of, each other, in front of you facing each other. We call these two isomers of ketamine enantiomers, or again, mirror images, and there is both an R which is the negative isomer, and an S, which is the positive isomer of ketamine. And these two molecules, interestingly, have a little bit different clinical effects. The S uh, isomer is more effective as an anesthetic. However, it does have higher incidence of psychotic emergence reactions than the R isomer. On the contrary, the R isomer, or enantiomer, produces more longer-lasting antidepressant effects. So it's kind of interesting. At this point, you cannot get the isomer separately, but in the future, maybe you'll be able to. Ketamine is a water-soluble substance. When you use it in clinical practice, it comes in a little vial that looks basically like water, and you draw it up. But it also has a high lipid solubility. And this lipid solubility enables it to distribute into the central nervous system readily. So it can cross the blood-brain barrier without any problems. Ketamine is metabolized, meaning broken down by the liver, and specifically the cytochrome system, in particular the cytochrome 2B6, 3A4, and 2C9 subunits. It gets broken down into a number of different metabolites, but the most relevant is, is a substance called norketamine that is formed by the N-demethylation of ketamine, and Many of these metabolites, including norketamine, do have some uh, anesthetic potency as well. Usually they're not quite as strong. For instance, norketamine has about a third the potency, but still effective. So even after being partially broken down, uh, these metabolites can still have clinical effects. After being broken down in the liver, a lot of them are uh, attached to more water-soluble molecules. One of these methods is by attaching sugar. We call this glucuronidation. And after this, usually ketamine is excreted into the urine. And so that's kind of the story about ketamine and how it gets broken down. But how do we get it in? 
that's sort of the other interesting point. And um, from a bioavailability standpoint, meaning how much of the drug is actually available, it depends on what route you take the ketamine in. For instance, if you put it in an IV and give it intravenously, it has 100% bioavailability. So if you give somebody 50 milligrams of ketamine, they're going to get 50 milligrams. In, in contrary, and actually pretty good, is intramuscular. Now, while not 100%, it's, it's reported in like the 90 to 95 range, which is actually pretty good. So you can give somebody an IM dose of ketamine and know that they're going to get that exact, almost that exact same dose. Now, you've got to be a little bit careful in that the intramuscular ketamine kind of has a slower ramp up. And of course, you can't take it back once you put it in, whereas the intravenous kind of works almost immediately, but you can then just turn it off right away. Other common routes include, include uh, subcutaneous and intranasal. Intranasal has a kind of a variable uh, bioavailability, but is reported anywhere from like 25 to 50 percent. And then rectal and by mouth have the lowest bioavailability. So when you ingest ketamine, you don't get much of it. Usually somewhere in the 15 to 25 percent range, it tends to be a very slow uptake and lasts for a very long time. So depending on how you use ketamine, whether intravenous or oral or whatnot, it can have a very different bioavailability and it can have a very different onset, meaning the amount of time it takes to actually start working, to peak, and then to go away. So all that is very important, and for that reason, in my clinical practice, I'm mostly using ketamine in either the intravenous and intramuscular route because I want to basically kind of know how much people are getting, and those are the two ways that I'm most comfortable with at this point. So in the clinical setting, you can get ketamine as a liquid, which can be given intravenously, subcutaneously, or intramuscularly. There's also inhalational preparations that you can, say, spray into your nose. There's preparations that um, compounding pharmacies have made that I've seen where you can put uh, sublingual and it'll dissolve underneath your tongue. So there's kind of a lot of different ways people use it, but it's really not used clinically, orally, or rectally because it's just such a slow, um, slow onset of action, a really unpredictable and low bioavailability. So you really only see the oral route used kind of outside the hospital in the recreational or in abuse uh, settings. And I guess at this point, let's take a moment to just talk about ketamine as a drug of abuse. It's it, kind of a, a semi-popular club drug. People enjoy it because it creates some euphoria. It can dull pain. And it also produces interesting um, sensory reactions, you know, things like hallucinations, out-of-body experiences, uh, very unique experiences, and so people enjoy it for this reason. By that same token or idea and the wrong mindset, it also can produce things like dysphoria, very bad reactions, people can become very scared and anxious, so it's not without uh, potential side effects, but as we'll talk about more later, it is fairly safe. 
deaths from ketamine are, are very, very low, if unheard of entirely. I think any of the deaths are more of a result of co-ingestions or accidents as a result of, of behavior uh, secondary to ketamine use as opposed to toxicity of the drug. In the club setting, ketamine can be called or is known by a number of different names. Some of the most common are Special K, Super K, Vitamin K, basically anything with K in it that sounds somewhat cool is going to be used in the club ketamine setting. And so it's something to keep an eye out for. It's not a it's not a really common thing that we see a lot in the emergency departments, but it definitely comes up. It seems to come in waves, and the popularity seems to come and go. And I do anticipate that as as we've seen so many ketamine clinics pop up, and the, its use in, in depression and now chronic pain have become so frequent, it is likely that we're going to start to see more of an abuse uh, start to happen. Interestingly, and unlike a lot of small molecules, ketamine generally is obtained in the recreational setting via diversion from medical institutions, veterinary institutions, uh, probably smuggled in from other countries, as opposed to, say, fencyclidine and a lot of the hallucinogenics that are actually synthesized by clandestine chemists in a lab. That part of it makes it kind of nice in a sense because you're not necessarily dealing with things that are cut. Maybe they were made incorrectly. Um, a, a number of factors can make it a lot scarier to have a chemist make something in a garage as opposed to a drug that's that's made in a by a pharmaceutical company and then diverted to recreational use. All right, I think we'll pick this back up as a two or three part episode. But that's a, a good start on ketamine. We did some of the more less exciting mechanistic talking on this first episode. In the next few episodes, I want to get much more into the clinical effects, how it can be used for treatment, what happens toxicologically, how many different things ketamine can be used for, and how it's such a, a go-to in resource-limited settings. So tune in next time to hear more about ketamine, and we'll see you again soon. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Full Scope Podcast. You can find a lecture summary, key points, and any references on our website, fullscope.org. Additionally, this is the official podcast of Wonder Medicine PLLC, a for-profit medical clinic located in Boise, Idaho. As Carly and I own the clinic and draw revenue from it, we thought we should... Uh, disclose it as a conflict of interest disclaimer alert it's a trap the full scope podcast was designed and created for educational purposes only it is not intended to diagnose treat or provide clinical knowledge specific to the care of any actual patient or population of patients if you are in need of medical advice or treatment contact a physician the views and opinions portrayed on full scope are dr brandenburg's they do not represent the views or opinions of wander medicine clinic any of the academic institutions mentioned on the Full Scope podcast or website, or any of the hospitals which Dr. Brandenburg has or currently works at.